Israel is celebrating 73 years of its independence as the nation state of the Jewish people, but it is under threat from Iran's nuclear ambitions. Just the other day, it helped to set back Iran's nuclear ambitions. Let's hear what you think about Israel on its 73rd anniversary. Today and tomorrow, Israel celebrates its uh, 73rd anniversary as an independent uh, nation. Um, I remember so well as a 10-year-old uh, celebrating Israel's establishment in 1948. Uh, Israel divides its Independence Day celebration into two days. Today is Memorial Day, uh, Yom Hazikaron, the Day of Remembrance, the day in which every Israeli, Jew, uh, Arab, Muslim, Christian, uh, stops their cars for a few minutes and a siren goes off and everybody remembers the Israelis, the thousands and thousands of Israelis, uh, Jews, Arabs, uh, Christians, Muslims uh, alike, that have been killed in Israel's effort to maintain its independence, uh, both as soldiers and as civilian victims of terrorism. Um, no country has uh, had uh, more uh, victims, civilian victims, uh, in its fight for uh, independence in so short a period of time. Um, and Israel celebrates uh, the soldiers and the victims uh, who have died in the interests of protecting the country uh, today. It's a sad day. I've been in Israel during uh, Memorial Day, and all of my friends, every one of them, have lost other friends, either to terrorist attacks or to battles. My own cousin died uh, uh, fighting for the Israeli Defense Forces, the only child of Holocaust uh, survivors. And uh, friends visit friends, and friends visit the parents of uh, children who have died, and, and the parents of, uh, of others, and, and husbands and, and wives. And so uh, today is a sad day, but um, as soon as uh, the sun sets, uh, Israel Independence Day starts, and people go to the beach and light bonfires and, and celebrate. Of course, with COVID, the celebrations will be muted, and uh, the events will be uh, less raucous than they have often been. Israel is also in the midst of uh, several uh, crises. Uh, first of all, a domestic election crisis. They don't have a government, and efforts to form a government have proved to be difficult, but Israel will solve that problem. It's a democracy, and democracies solve problems of that kind by using democratic means. But Israel also faces existential threats of destruction and genocide from the Iranian mullahs, the Iranian regime, which has sworn the destruction of Israel and the United States. It calls Israel the little Satan and the United States the big Satan, and it is trying desperately to develop a nuclear arsenal. Uh, it already has developed rockets capable of uh, sending uh, nuclear-tipped missiles um, far distances, not only to Israel, but to Europe <clears throat> and eventually perhaps even to the United States. Uh, Iran is technologically very advanced, and they have been developing these rockets. The rockets were not prohibited by the Iran deal that President Obama signed. Uh, back in the day, uh, they were allowed to develop rockets capable of carrying nuclear weapons. That always seemed absurd to me. Iran swore that it wasn't trying to develop nuclear weapons. Of course, that was a lie. Everybody with any sense knew it was a lie. 
But the idea that the deal would allow them to develop rockets capable of carrying nuclear weapons at the same time that they were promising not to develop nuclear weapons, I think, showed the absurdity of the deal itself, a deal that I strongly opposed. I wrote a book called The Case Against the Iran Deal, and I went and spoke to President Obama on more than one occasion uh, against the deal. He promised me he would have Israel's back, um, ended up he painted a target on Israel's back instead of having Israel's uh, back. And so uh, we're now in a situation where the United States under President Biden may go back into a deal. It won't be the same deal. Um, to say face for uh, Obama, they will probably call it a return to the deal. But according to Secretary of State Blinken, the deal has to be longer and stronger. The Obama deal was a terrible deal. It only covered another probably seven or eight years from now and then a green light goes on, and Iran could develop nuclear weapons. And it also had minimal inspection. Um, during the period of the deal, um, the United States government took the position that Iran was complying. That's just not true. Iran has always been developing nuclear weapons. A day has not passed without Iran doing something to try to increase the possibility of obtaining a nuclear arsenal. And anybody who doesn't believe that is fooling themselves. Iran is determined to develop a nuclear arsenal. And the former president of Iran, the, the, the moderate Rafsanjani, has said that if, if Iran develops a nuclear arsenal and if it drops a bomb on Israel, uh, it would destroy Israel because Israel is a one-bomb state. That's his word. It's a one-bomb state. One bomb would destroy Israel forever. Nobody would ever live there again if a nuclear weapon ever landed in Israel. And, he said, if Israel were to retaliate and drop bombs, nuclear bombs, which Israel obviously has, on Tehran, it would kill 20 million Muslims. But, and this is Russ and Johnny's words, it would be worth it because Islam would survive losing 20 million people, but it would mark the end of the nation state of the Jewish people, Israel. Now, when you have a moderate leader making those kinds of apocalyptic statements, you cannot allow that country to develop nuclear weapons. It's bad enough that we made the mistake of allowing North Korea to develop nuclear weapons. They're now endangering that whole area and ultimately possibly endangering the United States, and you can't attack a country with nuclear weapons. So the obvious approach has to be to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Nominally, that's the American policy. The American policy is not to allow Iran to develop nuclear weapons, but it's also to take Iran at its word. If it promises that it won't develop nuclear weapons, well, who are we to question or challenge? Well, you remember a couple of years ago, uh, the Israeli Mossad, under the direction of Prime Minister Netanyahu, broke into an archive, stole the entire archive, brought it back to Israel, held a press conference showing that at a time when Iran had sworn to the world that it was not trying to develop nuclear weapons, it was, in fact, working every day to develop nuclear weapons, every single day. And you can take it to the bank. You can take it to the grave, not to the bank, uh, that Iran is never going to stop developing nuclear weapons. The only way they will stop developing nuclear weapons is if they're prevented from doing so militarily, technologically, by sanctions, and in other, other, and every other way. But it won't come from trust. It won't come from a deal. 
especially a deal without teeth. Uh, as we speak today, Iran is digging deeper and deeper and developing more underground facilities not subject to testing, not subject to inspection, not subject to any kind of uh, oversight. Why are they building these? They're building them in order to try to get a deal that they can cheat on. There's absolutely no doubt that they are going to cheat on this deal. Of course, the New York Times says the deal's wonderful. But the New York Times has gotten everything wrong from the beginning of the 20th century. They got the Armenian genocide wrong. They got Stalin wrong. They got Hitler wrong. They got the establishment of the state of Israel wrong. They got everything wrong. And now they have Iran wrong. Oh, trust Iran. Don't worry. They're, 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 they're good people in Iran. You can trust them. Uh, create a deal. Don't worry. They won't develop nuclear weapons. Nonsense. Israel has not only the right but the obligation to its own citizens and to its allies like the United States and the Sunni Arab countries in the region that they have now created better relationships with. They have an obligation to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. And they took a great step forward the other day when the Mossad, at least according to reports, destroyed the uh, nuclear facilities that uh, they were working on underground, whether they did it by computer technology, whether they did it by uh, an explosion. Uh, the best information recently comes from former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, who said he thought it worked this way, that they didn't send uh, Mossad agents actually into the facility. What they did is the facility brought material in from the outside, desks and, and other kinds of instruments. And the Israelis, the Mossad, managed to smuggle into the material that was going to be sent by the Iranians into the labs, into the centrifuge activity areas. They sent in booby-trapped desks and booby-trapped other kinds of uh, 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 kinds of uh, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, facilities. And so when those uh, things reached into the um, down basement or the area that was covered um, by rocks and stones and mountains, then the explosions that were smuggled in with that, in, with that material could be detonated remotely. And that's according to at least Ehud uh, Olmert, who used to be the prime minister of Israel and obviously in a position to know, although he's no longer in a position to have access to ongoing intelligence. But that sounds very, very plausible. But the Mossad is not going to stop. And this is not an issue, by the way, that divides Israelis. Israelis are divided on every issue, secular versus religious, uh, Arab versus Jew, Sephardic versus Ashkenazi. They are not divided over the issue of um, stopping Iran from developing a nuclear arsenal. Everybody in Israel, Arabs, Jews, Muslims, Christians, uh, left, right, center, all believe that it would be an existential threat to Israel. Remember, a nuclear bomb doesn't distinguish between an Arab and a Jew, between a Muslim and a Christian. Um, it, Israel is a one-bomb state. If a powerful nuclear weapon were, God forbid, to be detonated in Tel Aviv, it could be uh, lethal for Israel's continued existence. And so every nation has the right and the obligation to protect its civilians from death by nuclear attack. Israel is no exception to that. And so I praise Israel's ingenuity, its chutzpah, its willingness to take risks and chances in order to destroy before it happens 
the Iranian nuclear program, nuclear weapons program. I praise the idea that they have taken action against Iran's nuclear scientists, that they have taken action against the centrifuges, that they've taken action against attempts to smuggle material in that could be helpful in developing a nuclear arsenal. Israel is to be praised for its actions. One would hope that the United States would join them. We know that the United States and Israel acted together when they operated Stutznitz, which stopped the Iranian centrifuges for many, many, many months several years ago. That was a joint operation. This most recent operation appears not to be a joint operation, appears to be solely an Israeli operation. We don't know for sure. Um, and we don't know whether the United States was notified of it in advance. It strengthens the hand of the United States in the negotiations, because Iran can't come back and say, look, we're on the verge of developing a nuclear arsenal. We're very close. You can stop us only if you give us a good deal, give us all of our money back, stop the sanctions, pile more and more money in the way the Obama administration did by sending them billions of dollars of cold cash that they immediately used for terrorism, immediately used to attack civilians, immediately used to promote their uh, programs outside of their country against other Arab countries and against uh, Israel. So, look, the Obama approach was a disaster. Uh, one hopes that the Biden approach uh, will be more sensible and more nuanced. I know that the Secretary of State uh, cares deeply about this issue and would probably not uh, support a program that would encourage Iran to develop a nuclear arsenal. So three cheers uh, for Israel stopping and setting back the program uh, in Iran. Three cheers for Israel in 73 years. I don't think any country in history has ever contributed as much to humankind in the first 73 years of its existence as Israel has. Uh, medically, look at what it's done uh, for the COVID. It's been the leader of the world in vaccinations and in developing the techniques to combat COVID. Uh, medically, scientifically, agriculturally, in literature, in music. It has contributed so much to the world in a mere 73 years at a time when it's had to devote the vast majority of its budget to defending itself against countries sworn to its uh, destruction. No country in the world faced with threats comparable to those threats by Israel has ever had a better record of human rights, a better record of compliance with the rule of law, a better record of concern for the rights of enemy civilians. Yet, Israel is now under investigation by the International Criminal Court, a completely political uh, and, and, in my view, anti-Semitic attack on Israel. When you single out the nation state of the Jewish people, when you don't investigate Syria, when you don't investigate Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, when you don't investigate China's oppression of its Muslim minority, when you don't investigate the so many real human rights abuses and you focus on Israel's defending itself in a war in Gaza against terrorism, and when you attack Israel for a controversial program of West Bank settlements, which is a political issue, which Israel offered to end in uh, 2000, 2001, 2005, 2008, uh, and is now willing to sit down and negotiate uh, peace with the Palestinians in the two-state solution on the West Bank. To make that an issue for the International Criminal Court is blatant discrimination and a blatant double standard. So Israel is fighting a multi 
front war. It's fighting a war for its survival against Iran. It's fighting a war against terrorism. It's fighting a war uh, for its legitimacy in the International Criminal Court. It's fighting a war against many of the European countries that vote to condemn it. Um, remember, the United Nations has condemned Israel more than every other nation in the world combined. And yet, Israel has one of the best records of human rights. Blatant, blatant discrimination. And so on this 73rd anniversary of Israel, um, I urge all my viewers and, and listeners to look at the facts, to look at what Israel has been doing, and to show support for America's uh, most reliable ally, for uh, one of the world's great countries, and for the only nation state the Jewish people has. There are so many other states that are nation states of uh, countries based on religion, based on ethnicity, based on heritage. Israel is the only nation state the Jewish people have, and it's proved essential from the time of the Holocaust to the pogroms and the inquisitions. Uh, the fact that Jews need to have a state of their own has been proved by history, and Israel has been a wonderful state, not only for the Jewish people, but for the world at large. So uh, three cheers, mazel tov to Israel. Uh, may it go on to many, 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 many more years, uh, fewer, fewer days of memorial and more days of joy and happiness to the state of Israel. So I'm interested in your reactions. So what are your views on Israel? What are your views on the Obama administration's attitude toward Israel, on the Biden administration's attitude toward Israel, on the Trump administration's recognition of Jerusalem and the Golan Heights and other issues regarding Israel? Give me your views. Call The Der Show. I want to hear from the wits on The Der Show. I want to hear your views on Israel. Today is a good day to call. Today is Memorial Day in Israel. Tomorrow is a good day to call. Tomorrow is Independence Day in Israel. So let's hear your views on the nation state of the Jewish people, Israel. You've heard my views. They are very, very positive. I am a strong supporter of Israel, and I will continue to defend Israel in the court of public opinion, and if necessary, in the courts of law, including the International Criminal Court. So let's have your views on Israel on The Der Show. Let's turn now to our first call. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, my name is James, I'm calling from London. I listened to the show and um, I hope you get satisfaction, Alan, from the fact that um, even in London, thousands of miles away, people are still listening to what you have to say. I especially like the fact that you're non-partisan. You give opinions uh, even when you don't agree with the people. It's much appreciated. My question is about the International Criminal, Criminal Court and their acronym Israel. Israel has announced that it will not cooperate with the courts today. My question is, what if the International Criminal Court or a member country tries to arrest somebody? Let's suppose they try to arrest the chief of, uh, Israeli chief of staff, I think his name is Abid Kohabi. Or let's suppose they try to arrest Bibi uh, Netanyahu, uh, put him to trial. Would Israel be legally justified in taking military action either against the court? or against um, the country arresting it on the ground that Israel does not recognize the court. And from their point of view, it's just a kidnapping. I very much appreciate your answer. Thank you. Goodbye.
It's a great question. It's a great question to be asked on uh, at we're, as we're celebrating Israel's um, Independence Day and Memorial uh, Day. You may remember that the United States doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court. And a few years ago, uh, Congress considered passing what was called Invade the Hague Law, saying that if any American general or any American leader were ever to be arrested by the International Criminal Court, the United States would send troops into The Hague to rescue them. I think that was mostly hyperbole, but Israel would not recognize any such arrest. It would not extradite. Um, it would use all of its political and other pressures to try to free the person who was arrested. It would be an entirely unlawful arrest because Israel is not a treaty member, and you can't just go around arresting people if they're not signatories to a treaty. So they would use everything in their power to prevent this from happening. I don't think they would use military force, but I don't think they would have to use military force. Remember, too, the International Criminal Court has a concept called complementarity, and that is they have no jurisdiction over any country which has a legal system that is capable of trying the people themselves. And Israel, of course, tries its soldiers all the time. Any soldier that violates the law is put on trial in Israel. Several have been convicted. Several have been sentenced to a prison terms. So Israel satisfies the concept of complementarity, even if it were a member, a treaty signatory to the International Criminal Court. It would be exempt from its jurisdiction because of its own legal system. But it's not a member of the court. The court has no jurisdiction over it. Israel has decided it will not cooperate with the investigation. It will probably cooperate quietly. Uh, through other NGOs, organizations. Um, perhaps uh, I might go over to the International Criminal Court uh, myself. I've been there. I've argued cases in The Hague, and I've met with the prosecutors in the International Criminal Court and would be prepared as an amicus curiae, a friend of the court, to present Israel's case without Israel being formally uh, involved. I don't know how Israel is going to deal with that, but in the end, Israel could not justly be convicted of any crimes under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So it's a good question, and uh, the International Criminal Court is losing a lot of its credibility by going after Israel. Professor Dershowitz, this is Barb in Kentucky. Two things, hopefully quick. First, in January, you asked what President Biden could do to earn the support of those who didn't vote for him. I called and said he had to unequivocally oppose both packing the Supreme Court and eliminating the filibuster. I gave him a chance. In less than three months, he blew it. You said you were going to give him a chance. My question is whether you have any lines in the sand that, if he crosses them, would cause you to reconsider your support. Second, about the revised Georgia voting law. The express goal was to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. You said you would have voted against it because you have, and I quote, no doubt that the law was motivated by desire to suppress Democrat voters and increase Republican voters. I still haven't heard from you what specific provisions you oppose, either because they would not accomplish the express goal or because they would accomplish the decrease in Democrat voters and increase in Republican voters. If you can't identify how the bill would actually impact voters differently by party, either your belief about motives is correct and the legislature was too inept to craft a bill that would accomplish that, or your motivation claim is wrong. Or if motivation can't be proven or disproven, it's irrelevant to the outcome and is an unconvincing reason to oppose the bill. I truly enjoy your podcast, especially the chance to weigh in on the issues you bring up. 
Great questions and very, very powerful and important points. As far as um, my, my line in the sand with uh, President Biden, first of all, he has not advocated packing the courts. So he passes that test. He has appointed a commission. I don't like some of the members of the commission, but let's wait and see what the commission recommends. I don't think they're going to recommend packing the Supreme Court. I do think they're going to recommend packing the lower courts. And let's see what President uh, Biden does. In terms of the filibuster, that's complicated. And, um, you know, today the filibuster helps one party. Tomorrow it's going to help another party. As far as the Georgia law is concerned, don't trust me that it was motivated by a desire to help the Republicans. They have said it. It's said over and over again by Republican leaders that uh, in order to save the Republican Party, uh, we have to pass these laws that uh, impose uh, greater constraints on the ability to vote by mail and to vote early and to do all of those other things. Um, whether it has the desired impact or not, uh, I don't know. The Times says no. I have an open mind on it. I am not necessarily opposed to uh, voter ID requirements as long as they're done fairly, neutrally, without any uh, differential racial or uh, partisan impact. I think, for example, that uh, requiring uh, people to have ID to show that they've been vaccinated is perfectly constitutional. You can use the same ID to vote. It's so interesting that so many people on the left want people to have um, IDs for uh, vaccination, but not IDs for voting. And some people on the right want to have IDs for voting, but not for vaccination. I want them for both, um, as long as it's done fairly. If it's done in a racially disparate manner, I'm opposed to it. But you're right. I think we ought to all study all the laws. I'm not supportive of efforts by all these corporations to get together and oppose all of these rules and all of these laws. I think you have to look at every one of them individually, and you have to see what the intended impact is and what the impact is. You may be right that the motive was to reduce votes by Democrats, but it didn't achieve the motive, that they didn't really do a good job in discriminating against Democrats. I'll, I'll certainly am open to that. Um, uh, often, I often say that the first uh, option when you look at something that's bad, the first option is often stupidity rather than bad motives. Here you have perhaps a combination of a bad motive coupled with stupidity that results in no denial of voting rights based on either race or uh, party or ethnicity. So I have an open mind on this, but I welcome your call on this and other subjects. And that was a very, very impressive uh, call, I think. Thank you. Uh, this is Mike from Louisiana. Professor, I'm curious as to if you've ever uh, personally served on a uh, on a jury uh, in, in, a, in a trial uh, or if your very specific skill set and knowledge base kind of excludes you from that or if you would just be dismissed anyway during one year because of that. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious because you're you. Thank you. Bye. That's a great question. I don't know. About 15 to 20 years ago, I was called to jury duty in Massachusetts, and I was actually selected, and I was in the box uh, among the 12 jurors. And it was a horrible case of a assault on a, a child, and uh, I was really determined to be on that jury. And uh, I thought the defendant, I you know, had to have an open mind, but he certainly seemed guilty to me, and I wanted to at least participate in the process. And then the judge, not the defense attorney or the prosecutor, the judge called the defense attorney and prosecutor up to the bench, and I could hear what they were saying. And the judge said to the prosecutor, you really want this case to be the subject of Dershowitz's next book? He's going to write about it. Why don't you please use your peremptory challenges and get rid of them? 
And of course, the prosecutor then used its peremptory challenge and, and, and got rid of me, uh, which really uh, upset me. I wanted to serve on the jury. Uh, my wife has tried to serve on juries, even though her name is not Dershowitz. Uh, her name is Carolyn Cohen. Uh, you know, they asked questions, and in the questions, it came up that she was uh, married to me, and she was dismissed from, from the jury. My older son actually did manage to serve on a jury in California, even though his name is Dershowitz, and uh, he uh, learned a lot from the process. I'd love to serve on a jury. Um, my father served on a jury once, but that was before... I was uh, well known. Uh, so I doubt that I'll ever be allowed to serve on a jury, but uh, it's an experience I miss. And and the, the judge was probably right. If I served on the jury, I probably would have written a book about it. I was listening to your show today, and I just, I find it unbelievable that your argument is because someone elects at, uh, to not get vaccinated, which is their right as a person to do, they somehow need to be segregated from society. A couple of things. If you're vaccinated, you have immunity to people or the virus. Uh, being vaccinated does not mean that the virus will entirely go away. In fact, it probably will never uh, entirely go away. There will always be some traces, a trace amount of it. With human, uh, herd immunity, that means that we have, like, you won't be able to actually pretty much pass it on that much to other people. Um, so, I, I, I guess it just it seems like almost like a level of discrimination against someone who has a different viewpoint or uh, has different health concerns. Because, in fact, there are people who cannot get vaccinated because of different things um, that they may be they may have medical issues or whatever. So what they shouldn't be able to be members of society and uh, do different things because they are not they either one don't have the same belief system as you as well as maybe they have a health concern or something to that degree so i don't know it's just it seems pretty wild for you to assert that well that's my position i will not um, knowingly associate with anybody who has not been vaccinated that includes members of my own family i haven't seen um, some members of my own family who are too young to be uh, vaccinated. I'm waiting for them to be vaccinated. Um, that's my right. Um, I'm going to be very cautious. I'm 82 years old. Um, I have vulnerabilities. I'm not going to expose myself to people who haven't been vaccinated. Of course, even if you've been vaccinated, there is a 2% or 3% chance you can communicate it to somebody else who's been vaccinated. But I'm certainly not going to deliberately go to a theater that doesn't require vaccinations. I'd rather stay home and watch uh, television. Um, I'm not going to go to a ball game. I love ball games, but I'm going to stay home. Uh, if, however, a, a theater announces or, a, or a, a, an airline announces that only vaccinated people are allowed, then I will uh, be more interested in, in going. It's not a matter of segregation. It's a matter of you've made your choice not to be vaccinated. You've made your choice to expose me to your disease. I choice that I don't want to be exposed to your disease. So um, uh, we each make our choices and our choices um, have consequences. And my choice is not to associate with people who haven't been vaccinated. If you haven't been vaccinated because you have a health uh, problem, you know, that's that's a, an understandable reason. But if you have a highly contagious disease um, just because you can't cure it, 
I'm not going to come into your house if you have smallpox. I'm not going to come into your house if you have polio. I'm not going to come into your house if you have COVID. Um, I'll be sympathetic with you, but I'm not going to deliberately expose myself to your contagious illness. And I think that's uh, my right. And I think the vast, 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 I can go on vast, vast more, majority of Americans support vaccination and are waiting online to get vaccinated. And those who choose not to, um, maybe they can be compelled to do it. That's not the issue we're discussing here. The issue is, even if they can't be compelled to do it, should I be compelled to associate with them? And my answer is an unequivocal no. Hi, my name is Ramon. I'm from Ohio. I wanted to respond to a lot of your discussions about the vaccines. I did want to first thank you, though, because I think your show really is, despite all my disagreements with you, one of the best YouTube or Rumble shows that talks about controversial issues but presents both sides, even if one side is ridiculous or the other side is difficult to actually substantiate. But I did want to say that, unfortunately, I think you have a very skewed notion of the rights of the government to mandate all of these different restrictions based on people's public health. You keep saying, oh, I have a right to be protected. Well, think about all the people who they die of pneumonia every year. And pneumonia is a contagious illness. And we don't force people to wear raincoats outside. We don't force people to do things that are going into and encroaching on their personal freedom. This is an, actually an idea that you're supporting that back in the 80s, Lyndon LaRouche supported. And I'm, I'm not going to make a Holocaust analogy because I disagree with that. But I will say that LaRouche, in 1988, he pushed a, an amendment to California's constitution that would have restricted HIV patients to certain zones because they would be contagious at the time. People didn't know necessarily whether HIV could be transmitted besides through the blood and other bodily fluids. And it came very close to becoming law, if, but for a referendum. So while I think it's yet to be decided whether what you're saying is constitutional, I sincerely believe and I hope that it will be found to be unconstitutional to force people to take a vaccine in order to visit public engagements and facilities. Thank you, and have a good Shabbos. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your, your call, but I just fundamentally uh, disagree with you. There's a big difference between pneumonia. Um, I mean, many diseases are um, contagious, but not like COVID. COVID is so highly contagious, especially some of the most recent variations uh, of it. Um, so many Americans have gotten COVID even by taking precautions that I think the society has the right to protect itself against the spread of uh, the disease. The fact that Lyndon LaRoche wanted to isolate gay people is not an analogy. Um, gay people uh, are, don't pose a risk to, uh, to me or anybody else unless, uh, unless I willingly have sex with them or unless they commit the crime of, of, of rape. Uh, uh, COVID is very, very, very different. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I, I do support uh, the constitutionality. I don't think we have to get to it, because right now people are dying to get online and get the vaccine. There's been no, uh, com nobody's been compelled to get it. But if you don't get the vaccine, please don't try to come to my house, because I'm not going to let you in. Uh, and I think that's a a fair, uh, a fair uh, assessment. Um, you're right, we shouldn't make analogies to uh, other situations. Every situation is different. Let me tell you something that I just discovered. George Washington um, required that his troops 
will be inoculated against smallpox. Uh, and no excuses uh, were given. Uh, smallpox was a dreaded disease. It spread uh, and could spread all over the country. And uh, the people fighting for our freedom, our liberation, our uh, separation from England, the great patriots were all compelled uh, to go to hospital and uh, get inoculated against uh, smallpox. So uh, you can cite Lyndon LaRoche. I'll cite George Washington. I think I get the better of the argument. Hey, a great bunch of calls today. Again, the kinds of calls uh, that remind me of the classes I gave at Harvard Law School for so many years where the students would ask the hardest questions and where I regarded a great teaching day as a day when I learned something from my students. And I regard a great pod day when I learn something from my viewers and listeners. And I've learned a lot from your calls today. So keep them coming. Keep subscribing uh, on Rumble, on uh, YouTube, on all the other uh, platforms. And keep calling in. Keep giving your comments. Keep sending your wits to The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.